0: Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi refinances federal and private student loans to save its members $316 a month on average. Learn more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Today's sponsor is Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at Audible.com slash decode.
1: Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media.
0: I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the leading cause of heart attacks among Silicon Valley executives, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com recodedecode Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Vic Gundotra, the CEO of mobile heart monitor maker AliveCore. Vic is a longtime techie, spending 15 years at Microsoft and seven years at Google, where he is best known as the person who led Google's social networking effort, Google+. In November 2015, he joined AliveCore, which helps consumers monitor their heart health from their smartphones. Vic, welcome to Recode Decode.
1: Thank you very much, Kara.
0: Yeah, so uh, you've had quite a history. So let's talk a little bit about you, because I think it's... um, Where you came from is super interesting. Talk, like, how you got to tech in general and then to core in the end.
1: Well, you know, when I was a kid, um, I was a hardcore nerd Mm -hmm. at a time when that wasn't necessarily cool. Uh, Right outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved programming at a very, very early age, about 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And it was far easier to program than talk to girls. Uh So that's what I did. In my Uh teenage years, I coded nonstop.
0: And why? What got you to it? What was the...
1: You know, there were some bad things that were happening in my life, in mm-hmm. my personal life, that I couldn't have, I had no control over. Mm-hmm. But when I sat down as a 12, 13-year-old in front of a computer, I had control. Mm-hmm. I, I learned programming allowed me to to build beautiful things. I could compile them, fix the bugs, and they were mine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was hooked.
0: What got you into it, though? What was, what when was I was
1: 10 years old at my school, uh, there was a principal who had the insight to pull about 10 kids out and said, "I'd like to teach you computer programming, machine mm-hmm. actually machine language, eighty eighty eight uh, work." And I somehow was selected.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I did the class. I found it exceptionally boring mm-hmm. until one spring I ran across an article in a, in a magazine called Byte Magazine, mm-hmm. and they showed you a trick. On the Apple computer, you could hit control break and you would drop into the memory buffer and you could look around and see what was going on. In fact, the, the trick was you could redirect the graphics buffer to a printer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it just dawned on me that I could interrupt my video games and take the what was in the graphics buffer, redirect it to the printer, and now my school books, my covers for my books had Load Runner, it was a popular video game, screens on them. Right. I went to school, and for the first time, Mm -hmm. I was cool. Everyone looked over and said, how did you do that? Right. And uh, then I remembered everything I'd learned in the machine uh, language uh, uh, programming class, understood how to read the memory buffer, and I was hooked. Right. I was hooked
0: and then you did it on your own or in I college did, I
1: did it on my own I studied mm-hmm. every book I could get I mm-hmm. learned I couldn't understand Byte Magazine when I was 11 mm-hmm. and one day when I was about 18 I realized I understood every article right, from right, programming to right. databases right. I did it all so hard. it was
0: a refuge it was a refuge it was a refuge It was a, a control, refuge. Ability to control It ability
1: exactly and then yeah. when I went to college I decided uh, where did you go I was at George Washington University and mm-hmm. decided to instead to go join Bill Gates at Microsoft mm-hmm. my mom was livid
2: mm-hmm. I'm Indian you left school
1: yeah I left school I, I didn't, because were uh, you know, a freshman or? Yeah, and, and I, my mom was like, "What is this Microsoft? I've never heard of it." <laughs> I said, "Mom, I Microsoft. think it's going to be okay. When they offered me a position, they said, "Let's talk about your options." Mm-hmm. And I assumed that meant they were going to give me two or three different jobs to choose from. Right. Didn't even understand that meant stock options.
0: Right. Oh, I see. So yeah. how did you? How did Microsoft find you? Were you were you working in the computer lab or? You know, there was some.
1: I guess what happened was it was
0: Washington's not exact. Washington D.C. is not exactly. Well,
1: well, what happened was they were just starting up their uh, federal group. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think, this honestly, is
0: the 80s, 90s? Uh, this is
1: 1991, the group right. was really starting to grow. But what happened was it was concurrent with when IBM was breaking up with Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And the headlines in the press were very negative on Microsoft. Right. And I think they lowered the hiring bar. They were desperate <laughs> to find people. Right. And I think I got in at mm-hmm. a time period during those couple of months when they would take any engineer. Mm-hmm. And I had the right background. And this is
0: before the, the trials and everything.
1: Oh, this is a decade decade before before, Yeah, This is is when Microsoft was very small. Mm -hmm. And I got in. I don't think I would have been hired at Microsoft later. Mm -hmm. But I got in, and I met the greatest people. Bill, I learned so much from Bill and Steve.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, Had the most amazing 15-year career there. Ran their developer relations group, which I later applied in driving Android adoption. uh, But learned about what it took to have a a developer ecosystem. Remember, Windows was the underdog. OS 2 was going to win. That's right. And so the first challenge I got from uh, the leadership team at Microsoft was how do you get developers to write for Windows when they're all writing for OS2. Right, right. And we were the underdog, and we helped turn that around and got everyone to write for Windows.
0: And do you, do you remember, did you move to Washington State? Did you, I did. You did. I did. You did. I and moved
1: you, to Seattle. Right away. Uh, it was about uh, nine months into my Nine job. months. Yeah, I moved, moved to Seattle. What were you
0: doing in D.C. working
1: on? Initially, it was working on something called, the uh, it was a VA contract mm-hmm. that, that Microsoft was trying to win. <laughs> I was the engineer on the project, mm-hmm. doing the RFP. I remember the head of the Veterans Affairs. After I did my demo and tried to convince him that this was the right platform, he put his hands on my shoulders, and he said, "Young man, you did a really great demo, but we are never buying three thousand dollar color typewriters <laughs> because remember at the time a, a GUI and sure. a graphics card, yeah. it wasn't yeah. a, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that graphical user interfaces were going to win. Right. And at the time, it seemed like a crazy expense. Mm-hmm. Um, But we did win that contract. Right. And uh, the world started to change pretty quickly.
0: For Microsoft. So you moved to Seattle.
1: Moved to Seattle. Moved to Redmond. Actually, I lived in Bellevue. Actually wait wait that's not true. When I was a kid I actually lived in Redmond and then mm-hmm. later moved to Bellevue. Right. It's right across the street.
0: Right. And then you started moving up at Microsoft.
1: Yeah. I had the most amazing time. I think Steve liked the fact that I was a developer who enjoyed talking right. to other developers. Yeah. Yeah. And truthfully, I was probably better at driving adoption of developers than, than writing code.
0: What was the culture like there? It's a very aggressive culture at the time. You know, people
1: say it was very aggressive and I think that's largely Well, you have
0: that reputation.
1: I mean, I do have that reputation mm-hmm. in the sense that people at Microsoft, and I think I share the same trait, mm-hmm. really are very clear in terms of a vision of what we're trying to pursue and are very vocal about it. Mm-hmm. And that is different than some companies where the culture is much more consensus oriented.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, at the time, competing against IBM, there was no time for consensus. Bill right. said, This is what we're going to build, mm-hmm. and we executed. Right. And we were much more of a startup, a very aggressive culture. And Bill, his personality really was reflected in the rest of the culture. Absolutely. And I, I'm sure I learned a lot from that. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I probably had some deprogramming I had to go through when mm-hmm. I went to Google. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that one culture is better than the other. Right. They both have their strengths. Well,
0: it got them into trouble, though. I mean, immediately. You were there during the trial. I, I,
1: I was there during those So what days. was that like? It was kind of shocking. I mean, imagine waking up every morning
2: mm-hmm. and you
1: hear the United States of America versus Microsoft. That's how the the courtroom opened up every morning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you spend a 10 years building something, you can't believe. You go through different stages. The first stage you go through is... Look, they just don't understand.
0: Right. If we can that's, just... That's usually the tech part right, of you,
1: right? Right, right. If you just tell them that there's competition, they're going right. to see the Mac and Unix, and then they'll come mm-hmm. to believe. And then you go into anger, which is, no, people are out to get us, mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to fight them and prove them that they're on. Which is Microsoft's exactly. go-to emotion. I, I, by the way, I tried helping people at Google understand that we had gone through this trajectory mm-hmm. so that when Google faced regulatory pressure, we could avoid that. In fact, I wrote a, a famous email that was widely circulated mm-hmm. about how not to do what microsoft did Mm -hmm. in in many ways this this trump thing that just happened has many similarities you know Mm -hmm. people just didn't see it coming right and uh certainly in microsoft it it, it caught us off guard
0: right it shouldn't have it really shouldn't have the aggression was so you know i think it's this we'll talk about this later but it's the idea that you're not powerful and you're so powerful like the, the, the concept it's sort of like again like this election that all these uh sort of this white rage. They think, you know, they've had all this privilege and equality feels like oppression.
1: And it's also the, the incorrect belief that everything is a zero-sum game, mm-hmm. that if I win, you have to lose. Right. And that's, we live in a world of abundance.
0: Right, except we, that that is a mentality and it was a mentality at Microsoft, It was, sure. it was. It was a you mistake. Know, they had to clearly kill, kill people. Clearly or, a mistake. Or, it, was, it was interesting, and it does come right from the founders, I think, and it yeah. does iterate down to the people that work there. It,
1: it, it is funny, by the way, if you ever meet Satya, hmm how different. Different. I mean, he, totally. he exudes.
0: Cooperation.
1: Cooperation and everyone can win. Mm-hmm. I, I spent a lot of years with Satya when mm-hmm. I was at Microsoft. And I'm not sure that Bill and, and, the, and the board could have picked anyone better. Mm-hmm. The right personality at the well, right times time. Times change, right? At the right time.
0: Right. Really good. And, and,
1: and that's nothing to take away from Steve. Mm-hmm. I have a great fondness for Steve. He's mm-hmm. a big bear of a man.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little about your departure there? How much of that was reported correctly about the chair and whatever that went on?
1: So the chair I never believed actually happened. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think the chair came from a story from Mark Lukowski, which Mm -hmm. even Mark says, Mm -hmm. Steve never threw the chair. Okay. I've I've spent so many hours with Steve Ballmer, Mm -hmm. and he is an incredibly passionate man. Yes. The most violent thing I've ever seen him do Mm -hmm. is slap his hands together. Yeah. That's it.
0: Yeah, but it's, pretty, it's a pretty good slap. It's I, a pretty good slap, but he's a passionate guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just
1: can't even fathom that Steve would throw a chair. Right. And, and so I don't believe that story. Well,
0: not at you at least, right?
1: I've never seen him do it. Mm-hmm. Never seen him do it. What was the
0: reaction when you wanted to go to Google Because Google was, the, 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 talk about a reaction it, it, against was, company. it wasn't a
1: great reaction. It mm-hmm. wasn't a great reaction. It was a very sad reaction. In fact, the truth is... I interviewed at Google for a year mm-hmm. and then called up Google and said I'm not going mm-hmm. because I was offered a really great vice president position on uh, on the MSN team and I was gonna stay at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And, and we went on vacation to Hawaii and I made my decision. I called Google so said I'm not going. I'm gonna stay at Microsoft and uh, I went on vacation and I was walking along the beach in Hawaii. And my wife said, you look really sad for someone who got a dream, mm-hmm. started off as a systems engineer, is now a vice president at Microsoft. You look sad. Mm-hmm. And I said, why do, you, why do you think I look sad? Mm-hmm. She goes, you just look like you're afraid. You're not the Vic I know. Right. You look like you took the, the, the safe bet. I right. said, I did take the safe bet. And, uh, and so uh, she made me reconsider. Mm-hmm. And I called Google back up, Alan Eustace, actually. I called up Alan. I said, Alan, I know I said no, but can you give me a few more hours to think about this? Mm-hmm. And he laughed. He said, Vic, take your time. We, right. know, we know how difficult this is. And I, and I decided to go to Google, and I was nervous and scared.
0: And what, why did you want to make that shift? I mean, I understand the safe part, but what was your dream of what was happening at Google?
1: Well, you know, I'm a platform guy, mm-hmm. and I really believe in investing my personal efforts into what is the successful platform or will be the successful platform. And Windows Day had passed. The Internet really was the new platform, Mm -hmm. and uh, Google had a deep understanding of the type of architecture software that was built for the cloud for the Internet would be based on. And uh, that's where I felt I needed to be.
0: And so you immediately started working on a range of things.
1: I did. The first thing they asked me to do uh, was run all of their developer relations effort. At the time, they really didn't have any developer relations group. There was no Google Mm I.O. There was nothing like that. They didn't really even have a platform. Mm -hmm. And then about six weeks into my job, they asked me to run all of mobile. And so I ran all of the mobile applications. Andy ran the Android team. But I was responsible for mobile applications across iPhone, Android, uh, Blackberry, Windows Mobile, Nokia devices, Gmail, Google Maps, Search, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was quite an amazing role.
0: As mobile was starting to become important.
1: Uh, at, at the time. It, it really wasn't. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't. When, when Andy and I were working on that, nobody believed we could succeed. The search is where it was. Yeah, I went to Nokia. Desktop I went, search. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, mm-hmm. the reason we had a mobile team
2: mm-hmm.
1: was because the desktop teams just didn't think mobile was big enough. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. Now, mobile traffic exceeds desktop yeah. oh, in, yeah. in most areas. Well, it's and the only so, thing. Uh, those were an amazing, amazing number of years. I mean, mm-hmm. The Gmail team uh, was four or five people. The Google Maps team was five people. Mm-hmm. It was very, very small teams of people. It's hard to imagine that a few years and later. how
0: were you taken at, at Google? You're very different. Again, you had a very aggressive reputation.
1: Yeah, you know, my, my I got in trouble my first day. Yeah. My first day, I was in Alan Eustace's office. Andy Rubin walked by, mm-hmm. and uh, Alan interrupted Andy, said, Andy, come in, come in, sit down. And Mm -hmm. tell Vic what you're working on. And he's working on this secret project called Android. Andy didn't get five minutes into his conversation. I interrupted him. Mm -hmm. And I said, Andy, why would Google build an operating system? And I pushed on him really hard. Andy Mm -hmm. got frustrated Mm -hmm. and said, I don't have time for this and walked out. Mm -hmm. Alan Eustace uh, pulled me aside and said, let me offer you some coaching. He said, this is in Microsoft. You should right. probably let people finish their thoughts. Uh-huh. And I went home. My wife said, how would your first day go? Mm-hmm. I go, I got in trouble on my first you're day. You're asshole. They think you're an I, asshole. I, yeah, I said, I got in trouble on my first day. And mm-hmm. thankfully for people like Alan, who were amazing coaches. Did you change?
0: You had a pretty regressive reputation the entire time there that I can recall. You
1: know, I don't know how much people really change. And, mm-hmm. and my personality is my personality.
0: Uh, though I do think Google is more aggressive than they pretend to be. Like they have a different kind of aggression. It's more passive aggression.
1: Look, when, of... when I was running the mobile teams for uh, Maps, it was mm-hmm. pretty aggressive I and mean, right. offering turn-by-turn directions for free was mm-hmm. a very aggressive thing to do, mm-hmm. um, but we were trying to shake up the industry. Right. Uh, right. Google Photos, mm-hmm. we were hyper-aggressive offering right. unlimited storage,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I think that's good. Mm-hmm. I think being aggressive and building products and, and innovating is a good thing.
0: Right, so you moved quickly on to uh, Google Plus.
1: Well, not quickly, because I did yeah. mobile until we were about $8 billion run rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we decided that it was so important we were going to take all the mobile pieces and reintegrate them into the desktop teams. Right. And so essentially, at that point, I was out of a job. Mm-hmm. And Eric said, well, you know, let's talk about Facebook. Right. And he brought all the vice presidents together and said, you have an assignment. Right. Tomorrow, you're all going to present for five minutes on what you're going to go do. Right. And so... I sent him a mail, him and Eric and uh, Larry and Sergey, a, a note at one thirty in the morning and said, if I was king, here's mm-hmm. the 10 things I would do. Mm-hmm. And so we presented the next day. And about a week later, we had a meeting with Mark Pincus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zynga came in. And in the meeting, Eric turned to Mark Pincus and said, well, Vic, I want you to work with Vic. Vic's running our social efforts. Oh. And then the meeting ended. Everyone left. And only Larry was in the room. And mm-hmm. I said, Larry, what was all that about? Mm-hmm. And Larry kind of laughed. He goes, oh, I forgot I was supposed to tell you. (laughs) You're running our social efforts now. Right, right. And so that's how I found out Ah. that I was going to be running a social efforts.
0: So what was the fear of Facebook like inside Google? There Mm -hmm. was a moment there where they just sort of lost their minds.
1: Well, you know, there was a period of time when, uh, I mean, Google's all about talent. Right. And when you see very talented people leave for something Mm -hmm. else, that's cause for concern. Sure. And at that time, we were losing. A number of our people to Facebook. Facebook had tremendous momentum. And frankly, some of us, including me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: could see the threat that Facebook. Uh, oh, 100 percent Yeah. I mean, it's if you want to advertise, if you want to advertise you're a wedding photographer, mm-hmm. you want to advertise to people within fifty miles of Palo Alto who have just changed their relationship status into engaged. Facebook absolutely nails that scenario, right, right. where Google at the time couldn't even tell you if you were a male or a female. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you could see the threat to the core revenue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, there was there Why was create
0: a social network? Because I, I have to tell you, Google are the least social. They didn't use social media. They aren't on it still. They are not social people they're, you know, I mean, it's a joke that they're robotic, but they're robots.
1: So Kara, so I'm not going to argue with you on that point. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? It but was interesting. But you know, what, one thing that social shift. does is if you think about You what, were a good,
0: by the way, you were very good trying to make the case that Google could do it. I remember us arguing a lot yeah, of the
1: time. Yeah, you know, social is, is important because people will give you their personal information, mm-hmm. their name, right. where they live, their relationship status, if you provide value. Mm-hmm. What is the value that Facebook provides? It allows you to connect and share photos with your friends. Mm-hmm. It allows you you to stay connected and, and in exchange for that you're willing to to trade off some information and that information is extremely valuable right and so I think that's at its very core level that's why uh, we were trying to do that
0: and what did you all get wrong now that you look back at it
1: I think you hit on it I think you actually hit on it you can't build a product that everyone doesn't use. Mm-hmm. If you, you know you you don't have all the engineers using social,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then you're not you're going to miss some of the nuances. Right, and it turns out building social is very difficult. Right.
2: Right, you can't uh, force it. You can't
1: force it. There's subtleties to human behavior and connection that you got to have social people working on social products. Right, right. And
0: right. if you
1: don't have that, then Yeah. You, I
0: remember the time I think doing a story saying showing that no Google executive used any social network. It was For the record, you I did. I had 7 million <laughs> you followers. Tried, you tried. And so right. I was quite proud this of that. This was on Google Plus.
1: Google Plus, yeah. yeah. And so So what
0: do you assess? What do you, when you look back and then we're going to get into what you're doing now because it's a, a total t- shift, it's a complete shift. It's sort of it's a platform. You're in a platform. That's Right. That's but, right. But um, how do you assess the success or not success of it? Where is Google's nowhere in social that I can tell?
1: Well, Google Photos is pretty yes. impressive. Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: But it's so in their area. And
1: they have some great assets like Android. Right. But I don't
0: interact with my photos. I just store them there.
1: Yeah, that's a very storage. good point. Very I don't good do point. other things with Look, them. Look, I, I use Facebook today mm-hmm. as my primary way to communicate with my friends. And Twitter, perhaps. And Twitter, a little bit of Twitter, but mm-hmm. mostly Facebook. And, right. and my kids are on Snapchat incessantly. Uh, and so, so, what does Google Instagram, do? Just, just as like nah,
0: like let's just give it up and focus on cloud. And
1: first, first of all, Sundar mm-hmm. is you know like we were talking about Satya being mm-hmm. a big change. Sundar's a, a tremendous, another lovely guy. He's another level, tremendous product visionary guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about what he led with. Chrome. Mm -hmm. How is Google going to produce a browser that beat a browser that shipped in the operating system? Yet he was able to accomplish that. So I worked with Sundar for many, many years. He is brilliant at bringing people together without the confrontation. In fact, I think he's much better at leading Mm -hmm. without confrontation than probably anyone I know. Mm -hmm. And so he has got a big challenge now. How does he keep Google continuing to move? You know, he, he inherited a ship that was already on fire. Right. He had to keep it going. Right. And he's done that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, at least Satya had a, had a ship that had kind of stalled. And he had to get it going. Right. right. Uh, you, in many respects, Sundar's job was even harder, mm-hmm. expectations to keep Google going. And I think his shift to really focusing on the next big platform.
0: Which is cloud.
1: Which is artificial intelligence. Artificial
0: intelligence, cloud. And he,
1: yeah, he has done that mm-hmm. brilliantly. Mm-hmm. And he's really pivoted the company, got everyone to rally towards a common cause, a common architectural framework. And he's made it available to even my small company. Mm-hmm. We're building on TensorFlow. right? And so... That's fantastic. If you right. win developers, you win the platform, you're gonna be protected in the mm-hmm. future and Sundar deeply gets it.
0: And has yeah. moved to the area they are strong in.
1: Yeah. I mean he's he's also a very technical guy. Mm-hmm. So like like Satya, these are technical CEOs mm-hmm. that really understand what they're doing. Right. And so I couldn't be happier for both of
0: so them. So you left. Why did you leave?
1: Well, I left because it was approaching eight years and mm-hmm. I had teenage children. And for me, it had been 24 years of 60 to 80 hour work weeks. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to miss my kids growing up. Mm-hmm. And I thought I had accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to shift the focus of my life and it was time for me to move. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and I did that. I left. I thought, honestly, I thought I was going to be re- retired. In the in the sense of the word of not working professionally mm-hmm. for a living forever.
0: And you had you thought about doing a fundraising? You do the typical thing. You all go around and decide what to do. So that was widely reported, mm-hmm. and I never you never ever
1: considered it. I, I never, know I
0: called you about it. I don't I, think I reported. it. I never did yeah.
1: it. No, I, I traveled the world with my kids, mm-hmm. and uh, I took photographs. And I had it, you know it turns out it took me more than a year to recover from Google. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how burnt out I was. Right. And uh, it turns out building Google Plus in particular mm-hmm. was extremely stressful. Mm-hmm and uh, getting a year to be with my kids and you know, taking that opportunity was a, was a wonderful thing. And then you happened upon this. Well, my friends told me. They said, Vic, you're, you're going to be bored. You can't just take photographs and travel. You're mm-hmm. going to want to do something. And I was convinced they were wrong. I didn't realize I was burnt out. I didn't realize it took about a year until those feelings of leading software teams, building software, really came back. And they came back in a big way. And I thought about, what do I want to build? And as I was thinking about that, uh, Vinod Kosla, who's relentless. He is. Never give him your phone number. <laughs> Never <laughs> Not give if he him wants your... something. Oh my God! I can't even tell you how many times he called. Mm-hmm. He called over the course of the year so many times that the phone would ring. My wife would see it. Friday night, 7 p.m. is when he would call. When we were mm-hmm. out at dinner, and she would say, "Don't pick it up. It's Vinod." Ah. And I did. I did pick it up to tell Vinod, "Please stop calling." Mm-hmm. And he said, "I'll stop calling if you tell me." what it would take to get you to go lead a company. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll I'll call you later next week and I'll tell you. And I told him three things. And he said, I got a company that has those three things, and you need to go visit this company. What were they? The three things I told him was wearables. Mm -hmm. I believe computing, since my earliest days, has gone from PCs to tablets to phones. Mm -hmm. And I think wearables are going to, in the future, we will have computing on our bodies. Mm -hmm. Number two, machine learning. When I started the machine learning efforts to do voice recognition on the phone in 2007, people laughed. They said, no one's going to speak to their phone. And yet, we trained Mandarin. Sure. Uh, we, we got voice recognition working in Mandarin in six weeks mm-hmm. because we took Chinese newscasts that had closed captioning, and right. we fed that into our systems. And then the work we did with Google Photos with machine learning, I, I had a deep understanding of the impact it could have. The so wearables,
2: that, machine learning, and?
1: And number three, I wanted to do something that I got up on Monday morning and right. jumped out of bed to go not do. Not a photo service. I don't want to go optimize YouTube watch time for 7% right. more this quarter. Right. Right? And so- Why not?
0: It's so meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that, so you got to this company. I got to right, this company. When we get back, we're going to talk about this company, which is a how do you describe it?
1: It's a digital health company based on machine learning.
0: Machine learning. All right, it's called AliveCore. AliveCore. All right, when we get back, we'll talk more about that with Vic Gondotra. This show is brought to you by SoFi, and today I'm talking to Alina Lucas, a member of SoFi's Entrepreneur Program. SoFi is a new kind of finance company pairing great service with low rates. The Entrepreneur Program is just one of its awesome member benefits, providing entrepreneurs with an opportunity to pause their student loans while they launch their businesses. We're here with Alina Lucas, and her company is called... Utility API. Util- well, that's a catchy one.
2: I know. <laughs>
0: so how did you get started?
2: Well, I wanted to be part of renewables and
0: climate change and figured out the one way to do that is with Mm -hmm. technology. So what does that mean? We get data out of utilities for solar and storage companies. Right, and then sell it to them?
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I... uh, you know, went to school to go build a better life for myself. I want to make the world a better place. Uh And I'm pretty terrified of climate change. Uh And I wanted to do
0: something about it. So how did SoFi help you get this? Did you consolidate your loans or what happened?
2: Yeah, consolidated
1: and got a better rate. The fact that they have a career services department, that's my favorite part. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't a student loan company want you to pay off your student loans and have a career? Putting yourself out there, I'm
2: in control of my own career Uh instead of some reorg in some corporation putting me out of work.
0: Learn more about SoFi and student loan refinancing at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I dot com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. We're here with Vic Gundotra, who was a former Microsoft and Google executive, a very high-ranking Google executive. who's was in charge of Google Plus and and mobile there for many years. And now he's doing something else, which is a digital health company, which is a big shift, even though it isn't, but it is. You were doing these things at Microsoft and Google, versions of these things, which are platforms, machine learning, AI. But you've moved into devices and to health. So can you explain? you, You wanted to get up in the morning and do something meaningful, presumably.
1: Yeah, you know, heart disease is a really big deal. Yeah. You know, uh, more people die Do you have of family members? I do. My father had two heart attacks in front of me. It's one mm-hmm. of the reasons why I'm doing this. One evening after I left Google, my brother came up to visit from Southern California with his wife and his kids. So my dad came over. Mm-hmm. We're all having a wonderful evening, and my dad had two glasses of red wine. He's about to go home and i say dad don't go home you've had two glasses of wine it's 11 o'clock stay here and he says where am i going to stay the house is filled with guests i said mm-hmm. stay upstairs in the den
2: mm-hmm. no
1: one slept up there before but he says all right all right, all right i'll stay And a few hours later, about 4 a.m. in the morning, he bangs on my door, which happens to be right next door to the den. Mm -hmm. And he's grabbing his chest, and he says, you need to rush me to the emergency room. Something's something's really wrong. Mm -hmm. He was actually having an episode of supraventricular tachycardia, Mm -hmm. uh, minutes away from death. Mm -hmm. I rushed him to Good Samaritan in Los Gatos, where they saved his life. Mm -hmm. And the uh, doctors told me that if I had been a minute or two minutes late, I would have lost my dad. Wow! And so when you see someone you Mm -hmm. love having a heart issue, it's worse than a horror movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're looking at them and you're thinking, is this the last comment I'm ever going to hear from my dad? Mm-hmm. So it's it's horrifying. And then when you find out that it's the number one killer of women,
2: mm-hmm.
1: one out of four women will die of heart disease. Right. That's one out of 30 is breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Last year, 8.6 million women died of heart disease. That's more than
0: 25,000. Which, which is also about our eating habits and our stress levels. And yeah, everything.
1: it is. It is. But imagine if 25,000 right. airplanes crashed this year, all mm-hmm. filled with women.
2: Mm-hmm. We would be in
1: crisis. And yet heart disease is happening. And this company, AliveCore, has a product that allows you to detect a critical arrhythmia at home.
0: So uh, stalker Vic, uh, Vinod Kosla stalked you until uh, <laughs> Stalker VC. He, he was relentless until yeah.
1: he made me look at this company. Yeah. And yeah. I met the people. I met the, I met the co-founder, Dr. Dave Albert. who's mm-hmm. a charming doctor. Mm-hmm. Once you meet Dave, you'll fall in love. Mm-hmm. And they just, they need some leadership.
0: Right. Now it has, explain for people what it is. It's a, it, right now it's a little device. Yeah, you it, hold it, it on both sides and it goes to yeah. your phone.
1: It's like the size of a stick of gum. Mm-hmm. And it's got electrodes on both sides. You just hold it. Right. You, know, you hold it in front of your iPhone or your Android device. We'll do an electrocardiogram, an EKG mm-hmm. of right. your heart. And most people can't read those squiggly lines. Mm-hmm. So our software will interpret it and mm-hmm. tell you whether you're in normal sinus rhythm or you have possible atrial fibrillation. And then,
0: what, and then it does your voice too, correct? It records
1: your voice. It'll record activity. Mm-hmm. If you have a Omron blood pressure cuff, it'll record hypertension. Mm-hmm. There's lots of ways you can use it. But right. at this basic simplest level, it was originally a device that did your electrocardiogram.
0: So the point is to do this every day because why? Because people, this is not something people do. And I, listen, I've had a lot of EKGs. I had a stroke, as you know. It's expensive. It's a pain. It's something you don't do a lot at it, all. It's
1: also invasive. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a woman, you have to go in, take off your shirt, mm-hmm. put on all these electrodes on you. Mm-hmm. It takes almost half an hour. Yep. You might get one or two done a year. Right. And here's a device you can do every morning. Mm-hmm. You can just hold it for 30 seconds and do a check on your heart. Did you know on average, it takes 1.7 years before they diagnose you as having atrial fibrillation. Right. And by the way, in many cases, the first time you're diagnosed- Is when you have a heart attack. Is exactly right. right. And right. so you know, women feel shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. It's the number one symptom of heart disease. Mm-hmm. And they, instead of checking their heart or feeling palpitations, right. they say, honey, I need to sit down and have a cup of tea.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're not even aware right. that you can have a device in your purse That can Mm -hmm. check your heart. And by the way, if you have AFib, doctors know how to treat it. Right. They can put you on an anticoagulant that could save you from a stroke. Right. And so it's largely an awareness problem. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't know they can carry a stick in their purse. Mm-hmm. That could so save
0: eventually life. these sticks are going to be on watches y- y- and all kinds of things.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. In fact, we just launched a band for right. the Apple Watch in Europe. Mm-hmm. We do not have regulatory clearance by mm-hmm. the use FDA. To use it here. You're wearing it, here. it right now. Yeah. We, we can't sell it in this country, but mm-hmm. we, we're working very closely with the FDA. Mm-hmm. The moment they give us regulatory approval, we'll make it available for sale mm-hmm. in the U.S. But this is on my Apple Watch. I mm-hmm. just touch it.
0: Mm-hmm. With like, one finger.
1: With one finger. How discreet mm-hmm. this is. I can, I can mm-hmm. do it right now while we're talking. Right. And I can do an so EKG. So the
0: software is on the Apple Watch? Yeah, it's
1: on the Apple Watch. It'll do right. an EKG. But the same software we sell today in that, in the form of that. Right. That and so then the
0: stuff. software then communicates to who? Because this is like, you can't want to do this in a vacuum.
1: So it communicates to you, the user, mm-hmm. will give you what diagnosis, whether your heart's in normal sinus rhythm or mm-hmm. possible atrial fibrillation on the phone. In addition, we provide an option on the phone. Two options. One option is to have a physician that you pay for do an overread of the mm-hmm. rhythm strip, and you can pay nineteen dollars and have a doctor review this immediately. Another option is for you to email that your rhythm strip to your physician, mm-hmm. and we see many patients do that. Right. And I mean, I get emails every day from people who've been affected by this device. Mm-hmm. I got one last night.
0: Right. That they had AFib and they didn't know it.
1: I got an email. I can read it to you, mm-hmm. but the email basically from last night says a sixty-nine-year-old man from a small coastal town in California says he bought the device. Because his wife's cardiologist cardiologist Mm -hmm. told him to get it. It helped her. She went into AFib and was in the hospital for two days. Mm -hmm. Uh, But two days ago, he was feeling sick. He thought Mm -hmm. it was indigestion. Mm -hmm. He pulls out the AliveCore device. It says his heart rhythm is not normal. He calls 911. They rush him to the hospital where he has a massive heart attack, 90% blockage. And he writes us a note that says, thank you for saving my wife's life Mm -hmm. and my life. Mm And so we get mails like that every right, day. Right.
0: Right. So the concept is is not sort of a, you know, a lot of this stuff in wearables has not really hit very big. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of them. Most people find them useless for the most part. And and the Apple Watch has been somewhat of a disappointment for a lot of people. Why do you think that is and where does it go because it seems like finding your steps or Calling an Uber just seems kind of pointless. It doesn't even work, the Uber part. But, you know, where does this go with these wearables? Because wearables is an important part of your business.
1: Yeah, I, I think in terms of wearables, we're mm-hmm. at the early days. Mm-hmm. We're largely where smartphones were before the iPhone. Okay, Smartphones were out there, but they yep. only represented 1% or 2% of the usage yep. until mm-hmm. the iPhone happened. Right. It wasn't that smartphones had the had the form factor wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just that the software experience wasn't right. right. And to a large extent, that's where we are with wearables. The form factor is right. But we haven't hit the software experience that makes it something you have to have. Right. Fitness products are nice. Mm-hmm. We're not a fitness product. We're an FDA-cleared a clinical-grade product. That's very different than a Fitbit. I think the issue with some of these uh, fitness products is that once you use them and you know what 10,000 steps are, you know what that feels like, it's over. Right. And so It also uh, doesn't
0: tell you anything. It doesn't say, ah, you ate this donut this morning. This is why your blood sugar is. And by the way, you need to get up and do this. It should be more prescriptive, I guess.
1: Absolutely. And and we are absolutely going to get there. Let me just ask you a question. Mm -hmm. What do you think uh, is going to be more accurate? getting an EKG at your doctor's office once or twice a year, mm-hmm. or having an electrocardiogram of your heart every day.
0: The second, excuse me, obviously. Yeah, and imagine right. what
1: machine learning can do. Mm-hmm. When machine learning has millions, we, have, we have now have over 10 million EKGs. So
0: you signed a deal with the Mayo Clinic. Explain that. And they're giving you money, which you're not going to tell me how much it is, right? Yeah,
1: they've, they've invested in our company mm-hmm. in a pretty significant way. And that deal is incredible. I mean, the story of what's going on there. So let mm-hmm. me tell you the story. People's electrical current can be interrupted, including in their heart. Mm-hmm. If their potassium levels get out of whack, either mm-hmm. too high or too low, they call that hyper or hypokalemia. It's a life-threatening condition. And today, people who are on dialysis often will have this happen to them, mm-hmm. and, and they'll die,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, or, or renal heart failure patients. Lots of conditions can cause this. The only way to check your potassium levels today is mm-hmm. to get a blood test. Mm-hmm. It's not an expensive blood right. test, 100 bucks. They do a blood test, and they check your serum. Cere- for some people. For <laughs> some people it is, yeah. but if it's a life-threatening condition, mm-hmm. you do it imagine you don't have to take a blood test. Mm-hmm. And, and what uh, researchers at the Mayo Clinic discovered, and it was, by the way, it was well known before, the, mm-hmm. the, the, they knew that your EKG, the, it's
0: indicative of this. the
1: morphology of, the, of your T wave is indicative of potassium levels. But what Mayo Clinic did was they started running studies and were able to pinpoint with a high degree of accuracy what your potassium level was. And they compared it with people who were taking simultaneous blood tests. Mm-hmm. And it was shocking to see the correlation. They used our device Mm -hmm. in in those studies. And so we were naturally the right fit for them to go partner. And we have a much bigger machine learning team.
0: And so the concept is to take all these EKGs and then blood tests, because now you have a blood pressure cuff, and find other things. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I, I know, I'm convinced, we, we, we've already seen early indications that hidden in your EKG are mm-hmm. other vital markers, maybe for potassium, mm-hmm. but there's likely other things there as well right. that humans can. see. If they're taking see. them
0: every day, if you're getting it.
1: Even if they're not taking them every day, once mm-hmm. we have a signature of what you are,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, then based on millions of other samples, the machines are likely to be able to see things that humans can right. No human doctor can look at an EKG and tell you with a high degree of accuracy what your potassium level is. Right. But the machines might be able right. to do so. Right.
0: Well, there's two things that come off from this. One is that, do we really need doctors? Like, our machines, will machines be our doctors? I just had a talk with Ann Wojcicki about the lack of need for radiologists going forward. Or you just need them to look like a machine can tell you what to look at once it reviews
2: Millions
1: so, of So I probably have a radically different view. I think, mm-hmm. well, I think we're always going to need doctors mm-hmm. because people want another human to tell them
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think in the future, and Vinod Khosla has said this many times, bedside manner, mm-hmm. uh, a degree in the arts is you know, really going to... could
0: not you get a robot eventually that does that, You know, right? maybe
1: some far distant in the future beyond my lifetime that may mm-hmm. happen. But I think like today, you would never drive a car mm-hmm. without airbags and anti-lock brakes. You just mm-hmm. wouldn't buy one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think in the next half decade... No physician will practice without deep learning, machine learning systems mm-hmm. by his side or her side. Is there a resistance
0: to, to it? Because I can tell having I, I gone through so. a major yes. illness, they didn't know anything. They really, and, and to get them to say that, was I'd always be like, you don't know, do you? And yes. they're like, yes, we do. I'm like, no, you actually don't. Like, just tell me, and that's fine. And I noticed it was a lack of data. I kept thinking they didn't, it felt like they were guessing and they didn't need to because there was so much data.
1: So, so Kara, this is an entirely new field. It's been mm-hmm. only half a decade mm-hmm. since machines have gotten so good that we've had the software, that with enough data, they can pull out things uh, that we can't see. And so the field of medicine moves very slowly. Yeah. Half a decade is a very short period of time. And so, yes, you're right. There is some resistance on the part of physicians that machines will be able to do diagnosis. But, but frankly, I've also seen incredible enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. I can think of Dr. Carlsberg, uh, Dr. Takata. I, I can think of many doctors at Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Cedar sinai mm-hmm. that are actually at the forefront of understanding how to use these tools, right? Uh, so I think it will happen.
0: You think it will, and they're not because the, healthcare has been the one area. You know, Google m- tried to move into it; they keep trying to do it. It's been like a real like wall that people can't uh, get over.
1: You know, I thought sometimes the enterprise moves slow, mm-hmm. and it does. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is the slowest of yeah. all enterprises. Mm-hmm. I could tell you, in fact, I'll, I'll, without using the name, if I told you the name, you'd mm-hmm. say this is the number one or number two mm-hmm. heart uh, hospital in the world. Mm-hmm. And we went through a tour of how they did cardiology. I'm not going to give you the details, but it was shocking to see how old the software was. I mean, some of the software used to do billing and management was written in Mm mumps. Some of your listeners will remember (laughs) mumps. I don't even know what that is. It's uh... a programming language used Mm -hmm. 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And yet, this is software that they're deploying today. And so... Part of that is the abundance of caution. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, and around are, privacy and around Privacy and, and people's lives. Mm-hmm. But part of it is also that it just it's desperately needs to be modernized. Yeah,
0: it feels very leeches to me, like some of the time when I go into the hospitals. So on the flip side of that, too, is all the bad press around Theranos and other medical services. It just seems to have set back devices quite a bit or, or health care startups in Silicon Valley. It definitely has had a, a chilling effect, I
1: think. It's an unmitigated disaster. Mm-hmm it not only affects investment mm-hmm. you know, venture capitalists are going to think twice before they invest right this was a very high profile blow up mm-hmm. but frankly it erodes confidence by consumers mm-hmm. if you're a consumer and there's a silicon valley startup doing something interesting in healthcare how do you know it's not another theranos right and so uh, it makes me angry mm-hmm. it makes me frustrated uh, yes working with the fda is challenging right. yes it takes an extra 9 months to a year to get something done but those agencies are Put in their place to protect consumers, mm-hmm. and in healthcare, you got to follow the rules. You right. got to do these things, right. and skipping over these steps is that is a Silicon terrible.
0: Valley disease, or so to speak, I, I, look, look, or is it just it, fraud?
1: Boy, that's a tough question. <laughs> you don't have to answer. Uh, it, in the it. I'm not going to answer it in the Theranos space <laughs> because I, yeah, yeah. well, uh, but I do think sometimes Silicon Valley has a philosophy that move fast and break things. Mm-hmm. You can't do that when it comes to people's healthcare. You mm-hmm. tell someone their heart rhythm is normal, mm-hmm. and they die of a heart attack that's on you. right? And so the clinical evidence you have to have to be able to get the FDA to say, you can tell this person they got normal sinus rhythm is appropriately huge. Mm -hmm. And you got to go through that process. So
0: what happens to that? What impact has Theranos had? Because the, I mean, I get blood tests all the time. I have have a blood issue. And I would love something like that, like that you just do a pin prick and then you you can do it from your phone. That would be frigging fantastic to have that happen.
1: Well, I think we've talked about the negative mm-hmm. uh, impact that it's had, particularly in the VC community mm-hmm. and, and people's eroding people's confidence in some right. of these new startups. But the flip side is, mm-hmm. it's also eliminated some charlatans. Right. You know, if you were a startup thinking you're going to do something in the medical space, now even investors know to ask you, "Show me your five ten k." Mm-hmm. Show me what the FDA has said. And so it's also had a positive experience in that it's like a fire that's eaten up all the brush. Mm-hmm. And the only digital companies that are going to be left standing are the real ones.
0: So, are you getting more investments? And you got an investment from the Mayo Clinic. How are Silicon Valley VCs looking at this? Um, you've got a record, you've got a reputation. Presumably, you could raise money easily.
1: There's good and bad. Mm -hmm. There's people like KOSLA and the Mayo Clinic that have invested in us. And frankly, there's some very high profile names that have said no Mm -hmm. because they've been scared. Um, And I understand that. Right. Not everyone's going to say yes.
0: And when you think about that, is, is it the money making or the nervousness? Because where is the money making from your products?
1: Well, you know, I think our money-making or our real business is going to be in changing the relationship between the patient and the doctor. Mm-hmm. Today, you have great software to talk to your friends. Mm-hmm. You don't write your own software. Use Facebook mm-hmm. or use Instagram um, or whatever. Yet today, when a mom talks to her pediatrician, she's often pointed to a hideous portal that she has to remember a different password yeah. for. Any Your relationship with your doctor has not been changed through software. Sure. And we're about, to, we're about to do that with a live core. Mm-hmm. Our next generation products are really aimed at the modification of behavior of the physician to the patient, and we think there's tremendous opportunity there to go build beautiful software that's loved by physicians and consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what you're going to see. You're from about us the next
0: Facebook year. of that because that's been tried. Lots of I've, they've gone over my desk over the years. This idea of you talk to your patient you manage your parents health you
1: so so the next lot of so the next podcast we mm-hmm. do All right. i'm going to walk you through what we're doing and i think it's it's spectacular mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very excited you know most people believe their doubts and doubt their beliefs mm-hmm. and when it comes to healthcare you can see why people don't believe it'll mm-hmm. ever change I'm not like that. I think we as a company have a chance to revolutionize the software platform used in medicine, and we're going to give it our best shot.
0: Right. So, but the device then isn't the thing, or is it? You no, have to have no, the device. The device
1: will be a component of it. Right. But it's not- But you
2: need the data, right? You need, you need the data. You
1: mm-hmm. need the platform. You need to have others be able to participate. Mm-hmm. And one thing I do know how to do,
2: I've
1: mm-hmm. had some success in my life, mm-hmm. is platforms, ecosystems.
0: Right. So what else could you measure?
1: Oh, there's blood activity, pressure. there's weight, there's what? blood pressure, there's voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you see... Talk
0: about voice for a second, voice, because I, I, I was interested when I was talking into it. Look,
1: when you, someone you love comes home, mm-hmm. barely have to say a few words, and you can say, honey, I you're okay. sick, mm-hmm. you had a bad day, mm-hmm. you're coming down with a cold. And so we pick up health signals in the voice very naturally with our kids or our mm-hmm. loved ones. Even a doctor today will do the eye test. He'll look at you, mm-hmm. listen to you talk. And that informs his decisions. Why can't software do that? Every time we do an EKG, we also record your voice. Mm -hmm. Are there signals in the voice that indicate stress? Are there signals in the voice that represent a change from a baseline? Can software pick that up and alert Mm -hmm. you? We think it can. And we're in the process of collecting that data.
0: All right. Lastly, on this topic, the fear of all this information. It's not just like me trading, I hate Trump things on Facebook, which of which there are many. It's something else. It's something quite personal. And a lot of personal information could be affect insurance companies, your job, everything. How worried should people be about this becoming so machine learned and so in the AI and everything else?
1: Well, people are willing to trade off very sensitive information if they get value from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, I have a credit card Um, They've never betrayed my trust, Mm -hmm. yet if you look at my credit card data, you'll know everything about my life. You'll Mm -hmm. know where I am, what I buy, who I buy it for, where do I ship it to. But I'm not worried about that because Mm -hmm. they've done a good job of being stewards of that information, and they provide me great value. I don't have to carry cash around. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is true here. If software is alerting you to a health condition before it becomes severe and saves your life, it says you have possible atrial fibrillation, get to a doctor, and because of that, you avoided a stroke. I think you're going to say, that I'm willing to do this every day. Right.
0: And pay for it, presumably? And, and pay for it. And right. pay for it.
1: Our do you is, imagine
0: offering that people? Right now, it's free.
1: Our device is $99.
0: Oh, the device itself, the right. The
1: device is $99. Right. You can buy it off Amazon but or our website. Uh, the services will come. People, I think people will pay monthly mm-hmm. for less than the cost of an office visit mm-hmm. to have the machines Be your first line of defense. Yeah,
0: I would love never go to a doctor again. All right, we're here talking with Vic Gundotra, who is the CEO of AliveCore, which is a digital health company. He was a former Google and Microsoft executive. Today's show is brought to you by Audible, which has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can listen to all of that wherever you are, thanks to Audible's free apps for iOS, Android, and Amazon devices. It's not a streaming or rental service. With Audible, you own your books. Vic, what book should I listen to next?
1: Uh, One of my favorites right now is How Not to Die.
0: Oh, what's that about?
1: It's an incredible book that's changed my life. It's a book about nutrition how food affects you, Mm -hmm. uh, the role of animal fat and dairy. You look very fit.
0: And what have you gone? Thank you. Vegan or?
1: Plant-based.
0: All plant-based. All
1: plant-based.
2: I don't know if I could do that, Nick.
1: The food is delicious.
0: All right. Okay. All right. Well, you have a chef, right? I don't. No, I I, I don't. No (laughs) chef. I have no chef.
1: All
0: right. When you become an Audible member, you get a free book every month, plus a 30% discount on all regularly priced audiobooks. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash D E C O D E, that's audible.com slash decode, and get started today. We're here with Vic Gondotra, former Google and Microsoft executive who is now CEO of AliveCorp. We've been talking about digital health, machine learning, AI. And where it's going. Um, But I want to talk a little more broadly Vic, because you've had like a big seat to a lot of changes. Where do you see Silicon Valley right now? Because again, healthcare is not something they've been to me, Silicon Valley has been, I always say it's big minds chasing small ideas. (laughs) And this is a big idea. This is why I want you here to talk about this. Where do you see Silicon Valley right now? And then maybe in the age of Trump, too, because things are going to change drastically, I think. Or maybe not.
1: Well, I, I'm, first of all, I have to warn you, I'm an eternal optimist. Mm-hmm. Very optimistic about the future. I can stand
0: you types of people. I,
1: I'm, well, I, at least I <laughs> would put my cards on the table. Yeah. You know, when I see Silicon Valley, I do see some challenges. Some of the inequality is scary and disturbing. Mm-hmm. But I also see incredible force for good. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, my father used to tell me when I was a kid that he was worried that manufacturing jobs were going to leave this country. Mm-hmm. And you told me, hey, Vic, when you're older, you've got teenage kids. The best car company in the world is going to be in some of the most expensive real estate in the middle of Silicon Valley. It's going to shake things up. I'm not sure I would have believed you. Mm-hmm. They're, they're building Teslas in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. The has come right back. And so there's probably 10 other examples I could give you mm-hmm. of Silicon Valley companies who are legitimately changing the world or trying to. Right. I like to think of Corps as one of those companies as well, and they're much smaller scale. But that sense of optimism, that sense of we can change the world mm-hmm. exists in this valley in a way unlike any other. Mm -hmm. And the right talent pool lives here. Yes, Silicon Valley has its problems. Yes, there's sometimes arrogance. And frankly, the the Trump election also helped unveil a tremendous bubble of blindness to the problems that many Americans face, that people in Silicon Valley literally could not see. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But despite these problems, overall, there's no place I'd rather be at this point in human history than in this valley. Because? Because the opportunity... To make your dreams actually happen, be surrounded by people who believe the impossible is possible and maybe even probable, it exists here. But what are those
0: dreams? Because, you know, here you have this week alone Facebook denying it has an impact on the election when it clearly has an impact on the election or pretending. Like there's there's almost a willful – They suspend their responsibility into things. I I think they do all the time. Hey, it's not us. You know, it's sort of guns don't kill people. People kill people. I'm like, well, you know, Twitter was a really big deal in the election. It had a part. Um, And again, of course, it's humans operating these things. But at the same time, the responsibility for, look, AI, it's going to eliminate a lot of jobs. It just is. I mean, and they pretend it's not. And so, and of course, the story they tell, except for Elon Musk, is of a happy, shiny future where everybody gets taken along but they don't get taken along like you know what I mean like that's the kind of seriousness that never gets addressed
1: I think you're right Kara there is some aspects of some of the work that's going on that the future is unknown I like to think positive I like to think that yes artificial intelligence may remove certain jobs that the machines can do better but that will free up those people to pursue things that have more value. Right. I believe that's happened over the last hundred years. So should
0: years. Silicon Valley have a part in figuring that out? I,
1: I do believe Silicon Valley has a responsibility to think about people beyond the valley. Mm. Uh, and I think this election is very, very indicative of the pain. You know, I've, for example, I've, I've got family members that live in Florida. Mm-hmm. They don't have the experience I do. Right. In the Valley, I throw a barbecue and my neighbors come over. One neighbor is in venture capital. Another neighbor works at Microsoft. Another one works at Apple. Another one works at Tesla. They have experienced eight years of the stock market going up. They work at companies where there's optimism and hope and they're changing the future.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For my relatives that don't live in the Valley, the experience is completely opposite. The stock market has gone up. They really haven't participated. They either work for companies that are in decline or have shipped jobs overseas. They see the world very differently. Right. And the Trump message resonated with them. Absolutely. And I think we in Silicon Valley have to be self aware that the optimism, hope, enthusiasm, and excitement that we have in the Valley every day with the people that we work with is not indicative of what most Americans
0: do. What do you do then? Because you are creating things that will make it worse. Because, Uh, you know, it was interesting when Trump was talking about manufacturing, I'm like, manufacturing, most regular jobs are, you know, it's not just, you're never getting those back, but now get to the next level of of jobs that can be easily replaced in this new.
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I think we should do. The first thing we have to do is be open to other viewpoints. I mean, I was shocked during the election how many of my friends would refuse to follow any of the sites that were conservative, like Drudge Report, mm-hmm. one of the most traffic sites in the world. Mm-hmm. And yet, my liberal friends would not read it. Right. Well, how can you understand the other side? Mm-hmm. Just like some of my conservative friends wouldn't read the New York Times. Right. You gotta have an open right. mind. Well, there's a
0: little difference between Drudge Report and the New York Times. Let's well, I mean, be clear. It, it
1: depends who you ask. Right. It depends uh, I, I, who you ask.
0: Well, okay. Right? I like my facts. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> well,
1: I'm. I'm I'm a big supporter of the yeah. New York Times. I've right. posted many times on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So I, I certainly believe in great journalism. But my meta point is we have to be more open to opposing views if mm-hmm. we're going to have a dialogue. Right. And secondly—
0: Well, there's a difference between opposing views and non-factual views. See, that's the problem. That I think it's the issue. Is And then if you don't— uh, Trump yesterday did three tweets that were actually inaccurate. And everyone's like, well, it depends on your point of view. I'm like, no, no, no. It's inaccurate. It was about the New York— they Just they were inaccurate. And then— But you had people arguing, well— That's your point of view. I'm like, no, no, they're actually inaccurate. So it's almost impossible.
1: I saw those tweets. I know what you're talking about. It's
0: impossible to to see someone's point of view when they're just factually inaccurate. Yeah. So give me some things that they could do.
1: Well, I would say two things. The first I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think Silicon Valley needs to be. And listening means you don't demonize someone in your office Mm -hmm. who says they're a Trump supporter. Right. I mean, those people got so afraid, they stopped talking. Mm -hmm. And then thus the polls were wrong. They mm-hmm. expressed their opinion when they felt safe in the voting booth. Mm-hmm. That's our fault. Mm-hmm. That's our fault for making them feel so uncomfortable they were not able to speak at barbecues about what they believed. I have a friend, he's mm-hmm. a very prominent friend, mm-hmm. started speaking up for Trump and the entire party shut him down. And he just I saw him I saw him withdraw. That's our fault. Right. We have to be able to dispassionately listen as much as possible and say, Why is this person who I believe to be intelligent, why is some significant percent of the country believe this way. Support this person. Why? What am I missing? Um, and the second thing I would say is we've got to stop using derogatory names for each other. Mm-hmm. And when President Obama got elected, and I think it was Mitch McConnell who said our first job is to make sure he doesn't get elected to a second term, mm-hmm. I was appalled. Mm-hmm. That was obstructionism at its core. Right. But we can fall into the same trap. Mm-hmm. I mean, we demonize large groups of people as being stupid, uneducated, uh, ignorant. That doesn't help the country. Mm-hmm. We need a period of healing. We need a period where we try, as hard as it is, to understand the opposing view, begin a dialogue without name-calling, and see if we can come together. We have to come together. All right,
0: but let me make, give a counter-argument. The other side doesn't do that. They play dirty. Yep,
1: you're right. They don't do it. Guess what? Leadership means doing the right thing.
0: Except when you get killed. <laughs> you know
2: what no, I mean? Like they, you're they, right. That's the if, thing. If we
1: get killed, then that's a whole other issue. Yeah. But I think the, the time is ripe for leadership and for people to stand up. We can't follow the same a model that Mitch McConnell did, right. What are we going to be obstructionists now?
0: Except that that won the presidency. Yeah, well, you know what I mean? Like you sort of sit there and say, "Well, we shouldn't play dirty. I'm like, well, maybe we should play dirty. Well,
1: I guess I gave you my personal.: <laughs> <things>. <laughs> Yeah we, no, we, we, but
0: I get it. But, but again, when Silicon Valley is making these things, should we bring manufacturing back to this country? For example, I should we Apple should. have I, a plant here?
1: I believe we should. If it's possible to do so, mm-hmm. we should try. Elon mm-hmm. Musk proved it was. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Look at what he accomplished. Okay. He did the impossible. Somebody told you, you're going to open up a car plant in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. You're going to build cars. I would have giggled. Right. I would have said, you're crazy. Do you know what labor costs in Silicon Valley? Mm-hmm. And yet somebody with enough vision and robotics, I toured the factory, took my breath away. Right. The robots were walking, passing me, were moving around me. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And so our core asset is we dream big here. And so when you say, bring manufacturing back, let's dream on how to make that happen.
0: All right. And what what happens in this administration, say with the FDA, for which is critically important to you? Maybe they'll just ignore it or, or it'll just move as it does, as these big government agencies tend well, to do. Well, you
1: know, I, I saw one list of mm-hmm. the 10 things Trump was going to do when he became president. Mm-hmm. And on that list, and I may inaccurately mm-hmm. state it, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but it was basically for every one new regulation passed,
2: mm-hmm.
1: archive two other regulations. Uh-huh. And boy, that would help a small company like us. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of red tape, the amount of process we have to follow, I mean, 20% of the live core, 20% of our headcount. lawyers are regulatory. Right. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And so do I hope President But some Trump, of
0: it you think is worthwhile. Oh, or, what,
1: much of it is worthwhile. I
0: was with a bunch of bangers who said, you know, Dodd-Frank being probably pulled. He's like, they're like, we like some of it. Like some of it's a good thing for the government, yeah. for the industry. You know,
1: I, I'm optimistic. I heard President-elect Trump on television this morning. Mm-hmm. And during the campaign, he swore he was going to repeal Obamacare, mm-hmm. And this morning on television, he said, well, there were provisions like mm-hmm. letting kids who stay with their parents mm-hmm. to be on uh, health care or to allow pre-existing conditions. He said those were great attributes we need to keep. Mm-hmm. And so I already see him moderating mm-hmm. his position. And I think as a country, we're going to have to moderate our beliefs mm-hmm. and, and, and try to find a way to come well, that's Well,
0: I think what people are calling that is normalization, though. You saw that whole debate.
1: I, I'm okay with normalization. Really? I'm not okay with normalizing evil.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, if you demonize groups of people... Uh, If you demonize Hispanics, if you Mm -hmm. demonize gays and lesbians, Mm -hmm. that's immoral. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm referring to. So
0: your Silicon Valley, which is, you know, known for tolerance, although falls down many times on that issue, you know, talks a lot about diversity and then doesn't accomplish it. Some companies do. You have someone who is number two in the White House who's a well-known anti-Semite or or worse.
1: I I can't explain that appointment. Mm -hmm. I find it appalling and shocking.
0: Mm -hmm. How does Silicon Valley work with that then?
1: Well, maybe Silicon Valley won't work with certain people. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, President-elect Trump will figure out who uh, is the appropriate representative for Silicon Valley. I mean, certainly Peter Thiel, for example,
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: understands the culture here. Mm -hmm. He might be a great place to start.
0: Mm -hmm. And who else? Because there aren't any. There's nobody.
1: No, I think President-elect Trump has to make 4,000 appointments in the Mm -hmm. next 90 days. We'll see who he selects and, and where it goes. And I have no choice other than to be hopeful.
0: So, what are the five critical issues, or two or three, whatever, that you think that that needs to happen in the next going forward for tech and in their interests, which is fine?
1: Well, one interest I have is I still cannot understand why computer science is not taught in our elementary schools. We teach reading, writing, math. I happen to believe that it's fairly obvious that computer science, not just programming, mm-hmm. I mean application design, architecture, mm-hmm. the cloud, that this should be taught from sixth grade onward. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a natural imperative that young men and women, young girls and boys, are taught this as important as math and science. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's crazy that we're not doing that. That's one issue that's very, very near and dear to my heart. Number two is climate change. We cannot have a Republican Senate and House and President Trump move backwards on climate change. Mm-hmm. This is an insane thing that we could do to damage our grandchildren, not our lives. And so those are two areas that I deeply care about, and, mm-hmm. and I, I think we have to continue fighting.
0: And what about for Silicon Valley?
1: I think Silicon Valley, those two issues, those mm-hmm. two issues. Immigration? Immigration is well. Immigration. But immigration, I think, is such a hot buzzword. I'm not sure how much we're going to make change for Does the average American understand that the visas that we grant to highly skilled people is what Silicon Valley, and by the way, that's self-serving. Mm-hmm. We're doing that so we can get the talent to help our companies. So what? Right?
0: It's not like it's for bad things. It's mm-hmm. not, I mean, like, what, what was it? I think it's- What it's, was it's, the number of companies that have been founded by immigrants in this, Silicon Valley? It's like enormous. It's a huge
1: number. Right. It's a huge number. Right. And so, But if I have to prioritize, I prioritize uh, teaching computer science at a younger age, climate change is two things that personally I, I'm going to pour my heart into.
0: And then lastly, topics like encryption and privacy and, and things like that. You worked on all those things.
1: I did.
2: I did.
0: What do you think Silicon Valley needs?
1: Well, I think there's issues of what Silicon Valley can do to innovate, and then there's issues of public policy. And I think the area of encryption, security, strengthening the internet, dealing with hackers, is moving at a rate that's too fast for public policy. Mm -hmm. And so I have very little confidence that public policy will deal with this. Our fundamental infrastructure, the protocols used for the internet, they themselves are not secure. And uh, we have to rethink how we harden these systems. I think Apple is doing a great job here with Mm -hmm. some of the differential privacy innovation that they're driving. But it will be innovation from companies like Apple, Google, others that will lead us to a more secure, better encrypted uh, uh, model. And I think Silicon Valley is taking the lead here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the iPhone is very, very difficult to crack.
0: Yeah, but I hear they're coming up with more stuff that is going to yeah. be absolutely uncrackable at some point.
1: I believe they'll they'll continue to work on improving those things. All right, last
0: question. I'm going to go through some companies. What companies do you think of the big companies are still sort of super competitive right now? I'll go through them. Apple. Just want your thoughts on each of them, and we'll finish up with that.
1: I think they're facing their challenges. Which are? I think Steve's been gone for a long time now. And I say, who is going to step up and lead innovation? Mm-hmm. Innovation is not removing ports. Mm-hmm. Real innovation. What? That was
0: courage, Mick. <laughs> All right, Google.
1: Leadership is often the best indicator of whether a company is going to be competitive. Mm-hmm. And I would say, look at Sundar and you make your judgment. Okay. I'm very positive. Microsoft. One, same thing. Mm-hmm. Spend 10 minutes with Satya. Look at how much he's changed the company in such a short period of time. And uh, that kind of bringing people together is going to give Microsoft a shot. They still have their challenges. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a year ago, Microsoft was irrelevant in my life. Mm-hmm. Today, I've got Microsoft Word on my iPad. I use Microsoft Outlook as my primary email client.
2: Mm-hmm. They're it's a me- good email.
1: They, it's a great email client. Yes. So they are coming back by being pragmatic. Mm-hmm. And uh, once again, huge uh, credits to Satya. Facebook. Don't ever count Zuckerberg out.
2: No,
1: I've had a big position in Facebook to, <laughs> since I left Google. I've probably my largest personal position. Uh-huh. It was was Facebook you at twenty eight. joke, Well, I, be- yeah. I believe in social, and yeah. Zuckerberg has executed mm-hmm. on product improvements. Yeah. Remember when we thought it was crazy he bought Instagram? Yeah, and look at look how oh, well, I don't think it was. Yeah, he's he's yeah. done an amazing job. Yeah. So, go back to leadership, execution, product focus. Zuckerberg yeah. has it.
0: What about Uber?
1: Wow, that's a tough one. Because? Because I. You know, if you say the innovation is the great software experience, then yes. They just recently, I think yes, last saw, week, improved yeah, their app. And as Mind long as only. they keep on improving, you're going to be mm-hmm. fine. And then there's a question of, is it a zero-sum game? Mm-hmm. Will you have a competitor like Lyft? And if Lyft is strong enough, then how do you maintain margins? Mm-hmm. So the future of Uber is a little less clear to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's than, a very
0: good point. That's yeah. an excellent point. Yeah. Snapchat?
1: Uh, my kids, that's their primary news source. They spend more time on Snapchat than all other forms of media combined. Yep. So that's a pretty good indicator.
0: Did you ever see that coming? No, nobody did.
1: I was skeptical. Eric Schmidt kept telling me I was overly skeptical and I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Turns out Eric was Eric. right.
0: Eric. Eric was right. Eric, I'm not going to ask. Oh, last two. Twitter?
1: Product innovation. Mm-hmm. Where is it? Right. Where has it been for the past three or four years? Yep. I come back to show me how fast the product's innovating. hmm and if your company has product constipation, nothing comes out for years.
0: Product <laughs> constipation. <laughs>
1: not, not a good place to be.
0: Yeah, then I'm not going to mention Yahoo, I guess. <laughs> Vicki, we're the one inside Google who took Marissa to task, as I understand it. But I don't need you to comment on that. No comment. No comment. And then the last one, all these telecoms buying these things like Yahoo and AOL and the rest.
1: The telecoms have woken up. Mm-hmm. They suddenly realize their asset that they need to have is software. Mm-hmm. Maybe too late. Maybe too late to build apps. It may be too late. We'll see what Verizon can do. But mm-hmm. uh, the Facebooks of the world, the Googles of the world, these are the ones with software platforms, right? And that's what's changing the
2: right.
0: world. Right. Right. All right. Last question. What company do you think I'm not paying attention to that I should? Besides AliveCore? Live
1: Core. Besides AliveCore. Live Core. Very good. Um, boy, that's a tough question because you are really on top of these companies. It's hard to see that you'd miss one. Mm, I might. I don't think I have a really good answer to that right. question. Well, anyway.
0: All right, Vic Gundotra, thank you so much. It's great talking to you. Thanks for coming by. Thank you, Kara. And I'm going to take my EKG later. I do do use it every day. It's really interesting. I think it's, having had a stroke, I really do think it's important to keep on top of that. And I'm eager to see what It actually helps me with else besides the one thing, which will be interesting. But I might get your blood pressure cuff, too, and see how that works. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with 23andMe CEO Ann Wojcicki, Pokemon Go creator John Hanke, and Coastal Ventures partner Keith Raboy, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com recodedecode Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest.
2: Tune in then.